The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you. great struggle, the great struggle of Jonathan Edwards' day is still the struggle today. Pastor Stoddard, his grandpa, brought into the church, half-converted, meaning those those people who were second generation who never had had a real conversion experience wanted their children to be baptized into the church. They wanted funerals that were Christian, and they wanted Christian marriages. They wanted a pastor to oversee their wedding day. Jonathan Edwards was totally opposed to the half-converted. And I agree with him. In this message that I'm going to share with you today, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, one of his most famous sermons preached in Enfield, Connecticut on July 8, 1741, he is dealing specifically with people who have a reputation or a claim of being Christian but who have never truly been born from above and still walk in known rebellion and sin against the Lord. He is dealing in this sermon with people who have never given up the world, the flesh, or the devil in its entirety and have been totally given over to Jesus Christ. 
This is the great problem of America today. Now, Jonathan Edwards is credited, and I believe rightly so, with being the person the Holy Spirit used to start the first great awakening in America. This great awakening literally prepared the way for the war with England that was to come April 19, 1775, when the British general came to Concord in Lexington to confiscate their firearms. And the Patriots said, no, we will not give up our firearms. The first shots of that war were fired by a Baptist pastor and his elders. He had come to church that morning in the uniform of the Continental Army. And he invited his elders and the farmers to join him. And they went to prevent the confiscation of firearms. It was the preaching of Jonathan Edwards that turned a nation toward the Lord in such a way that the Lord could bless America and give it success against the British. That was a war we should not have won, but by the merciful hand of Almighty God, we overcame. We need another great awakening, because today we are filled with every vile wickedness. We have a situation where our our moral values have been utterly destroyed in America. Our ethical values have been eviscerated. They have all vanished into thin air and have been replaced by lies, deceit, and the golden calf. And God's judgments are about to fall upon this nation with fire and indignation. He is angry with America. And so I'm going to read for you most of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't have time to read the entirety of it, but I will do as much as I can. His scripture was found in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, 32, verse 35. Their foot shall slide in due time. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that as I read this powerful message out of the past, from 1741, I ask that the same mighty Holy Spirit who fell upon the congregation as they listened to this message will fall upon this radio congregation and this internet congregation. I'm asking that out of this, you will ignite another great awakening. Lord, I trust you. 
I will only receive from your hand what you choose to give me. I stand by faith for this radio broadcast. I stand by faith that you will move in the hearts of faithful men and women to give hilariously, generously for the work of the gospel. I come by faith today, Jesus, in full confidence of your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. Their foot shall slide in due time. In this verse is threatened the vengeance of God on the wicked, unbelieving Israelites that were God's visible people and lived under means of grace, and that notwithstanding all of God's wonderful works that he had wrought towards the people, they yet remained, as it is expressed in verse 28, void of counsel, having no understanding in them, and that under all the cultivations of heaven brought forth bitter and poisonous fruit. The expression that I've chosen for my text, their foot shall slide in due time, <clears throat> pardon me, seems to imply the following things relating to the punishment and destruction that these wicked Israelites were exposed to that they were always exposed to destruction. As one that stands or walks in slippery places is always exposed to fall. This is implied in the manner of their destruction coming upon them, being represented by their foot's sliding. The same is expressed in Psalms. Surely thou didst set them in a slippery place. Thou castest them down into destruction. It implies that there were always, they were always exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction, as he that walks in slippery places, in every moment liable to fall. He can't foresee one moment whether he will stand or fall in the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once without warning, which is also expressed in the Psalms. Surely thou didst set them in a slippery place. Thou casteth them down into destruction. How are they brought into this destruction? As in a moment. Another thing implied is that they are liable to fall of themselves without being thrown down by the hand of another, as he that stands or walks on slippery ground needs nothing but his own weight to throw him down. That the reason why they are fallen already and don't fall now, is only that God's appointed time has not yet come. For it is said that when they, that due time or that appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall, as they are inclined by their own weight. God won't hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And then at that very instant they shall fall to destruction, as he that stands in such slippery declining ground on the edge of a pit that he cannot stand alone, and when he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. The observation from the words that I now insist upon is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell 
but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the least decree, degree or in any respect whatsoever any hand in their preservation of the wicked man for one moment. The truth of this observation may appear by the following considerations. There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands can't be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He's not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel that has found means to fortify himself and has made himself strong by the number of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress that is in any defense against the power of God. Though hand join in hand, and vast multitudes of God's enemies combined and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind, or large quantities of dry stubble before the devouring flame. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that we see crawling on the earth, so tis easy for us to cut a, a single or slender thread that anything hangs by. Thus easy is it for God when he pleases to cast his enemies down to hell. What are we that we should think to stand before him, at whose rebuke the earth trembles, and before whom the rocks are thrown down? They deserve to be cast into hell, so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God's using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of Sodom, cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads, and tis nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. They are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They don't only justly deserve to be cast thither, but the sentence of the law of God, that eternal, immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between himself and mankind, is gone out against them and stands against them so that they are bound over to hell. He that believeth not is already condemned so that every unconverted man properly belongs to hell. That is his place. From thence he is. Ye are from beneath and thither is he bound to the place that justice and God's word and the sentence of his unchangeable law assigns to him. 
They are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they don't go down to hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, is not very angry with them, as angry as he is with many of those miserable creatures that he is now tormenting in hell. And do there feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth, yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation, that it may be are at ease and quiet, than he is with many of those who are now in the flames of hell. So that it's not because God is unmindful of their wickedness and doesn't resent it, that he doesn't lose his hand and cut them off. God is not altogether such a one as themselves, though they may imagine him to be so. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation doesn't slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit openeth her mouth unto them. The devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them as his own. At what moment God shall permit him? They belong to the devil. He has their souls in his possession and under his dominion. The scripture represents them as his goods. Luke 11.21 The devils watch them. They are ever by them. At the right hand, they stand waiting for them like greedy, hungry lions that see their prey and expect to have it, but are for the present kept back. If God should withdraw his hand by which they are restrained, they would in one moment fly upon their poor souls. The old servant is gaping for them. Hell opens its mouth wide to receive them, and if God should permit it, they would be hastily swallowed up and lost for eternity. God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell one moment. God certainly has made no promise either of eternal life or of any deliverance or preservation from eternal death but what are contained in the covenants of grace, the promises that are given in Christ, in whom all the promises are yes and amen. But surely they have no interest in the promises of the covenant of grace that are not the children of the covenant, and that do not believe in any of the promises of the covenant. They have no interest in the mediator of the covenant. So that whatever some have imagined and pretended about promises made to natural man's earnest seeking knocking, tis plain and manifest that whatever pains a natural man takes in religion, whether prayers, till he believes in Christ, God is under no manner of obligation to keep him a moment from eternal destruction. So that thus it is that natural man 
held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great toward them as to those that are actually suffering the execution of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger, neither neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up for one moment. The devil is waiting for them in hell. Hell is gasping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out. They have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be of any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobligated forbearance of an angry God. The use may be of awakening to unconverted persons in this congregation. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. That is, those of you who are still walking in known sin. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open. And you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. Tis only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You probably are not sensible to this. You find you are kept out of hell, but don't see the hand of God in it. But look at other things, as the good state of your bodily constitution, your care of your own life, the means you use for your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing if God should withdraw his hand. They would avail no merit to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold up a person that is suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead to trend downward with great weight and pressure toward hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf in your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence. Your best contrivance, all your righteousness— would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock, were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God. The earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The creature is made subject to the bondage of your corruption, Not willingly. The sun doesn't willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth doesn't willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lust. 
nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air doesn't willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. God's creatures are good and were made for man to serve God with and doesn't willingly subserve to any other purpose and groans when they are abused to purposes so directly contrary to their nature and their end. And the world would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of God. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of dreadful storm and big with thunder. Were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury, and your destruction would come like a whirlwind, and you would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the purpose. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given and the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is loosed. Tis true, the judgment against your evil work has not been executed, yet the floods of God's vengeance have been treasured up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there's nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward? If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power, and if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times that, then the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow of your heart and strains the bow. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk on your blood. Thus are all you who never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls. All that were never born again and made new creatures, raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and altogether unexperienced light and life, However, you may have reformed your life in many things and may have had religious affections and may keep up a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God, and maybe you may even be strict in it. You are thus in the hands of an angry God. Tis nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may now be of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. 
These that are gone before you in like circumstances with you see that it was so with them, for destruction came suddenly upon them at the most unexpected time. They expected nothing of it. While they were saying peace and safety, now they say that those things that they depended on for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as he holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire at every moment. Tis ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. There's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There's no other reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you've sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yet there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many that are already damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in a mediator, nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, Nothing that you've ever done, nothing you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. How dreadful is the state of those who are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again. However moral and strict and sober and religious you may be otherwise, oh, that you would consider it whether you be young or old. There is a reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that are actually to be made subjects of this misery for all eternity. We know not who they are, or in what seats they sit, or what thoughts they now have. It may be they are now at ease and hear all these things without much disturbance, and are now flattering themselves that they're not the persons, promising themselves that they shall escape. If we knew that there was one person and but one in the whole congregation 
that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. If we knew who it was, what an awful sight it would be to see such a person. How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamination, a bitter cry over them, but alas, instead of one, how many it is likely will not be in hell in a very short time before this year is out. And it would be no wonder if some person who's now listening, feeling quiet and secure, should not be in hell tomorrow morning. Those of you that finally continue in a natural condition and shall be kept out of hell longest, will be there in a little time. Your damnation doesn't slumber. It will come swiftly and in all probability very suddenly upon many of you. You have reason to wonder that you're not already in hell. Tis doubtless the case of some that hereto have been seen and known that never deserved hell more than you, that heretofore appeared likely to have been alive as you, Their case is past all hope. They are now crying in extreme misery and perfect despair in hell. But here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God and have opportunity to obtain your salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day such opportunity as you now enjoy? And now you have an extraordinary opportunity a day within Christ where he has flung open the door of mercy and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day within wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east and the west, the north and the south, and many that were very likely in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him that has loved them and washed them from their sins. In his own blood, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, how awful it is to be left behind on such a day, to see so many others feasting while you are perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have caused to mourn for sorrow of heart, And how for vexation of spirit, how can you rest for one moment in that condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of the people that suffered, where they are flocking from day to day to Christ? Are there not many here that have long lived long in the world, that are not to this day born again? And so are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and have done nothing ever since they lived but treasure up wrath against the day of wrath? Oh, sirs, your cause is in a special manner is extremely dangerous. Your guilt and hardness of heart is extremely great. Don't you see how generally persons of your years are passed over and left in the present remarkable and wonderful disposition of God's mercy? You had need to consider yourselves and to wake thoroughly out of sleep. You cannot bear the fierceness and the wrath of an infinite God. 
and you that are young men and young women, will you neglect this precious season that you now enjoy when so many others of your age are renouncing all youthful vanities and flocking to Christ? You especially have now an extraordinary opportunity, but if you neglect it, it will soon be with you as it is with those persons who spent all the precious days of youth in sin and now come to such a dreadful pass in blindness and hardness. And you children that are unconverted, don't you know that you're going to hell to bear the dreadful wrath of God that is now angry with you every day and every night? Will you be content to be children of the devil when so many other children in the land are converted and are becoming the holy, happy children of King Jesus? And let everyone that is yet out of Christ, hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men, young men, middle-aged, young people, or little children, now hearken to the loud call of God's word and province. This acceptable year of the Lord, that is a day of such favor, their guilt increases apace as such a day as this, if neglecting their souls. And never was there a great danger of such persons being given up to hardness of heart and blindness of mind. God seems now to be hastily gathering in his elect in all parts of the land, and probably the bigger part of the adult persons that ever shall be saved will be brought in now in a little time. And that it will be, as it was on that great outpouring of the Spirit upon the Jews in the apostles' days, the election will obtain and rest will be blinded. If there should be the case with you, you will eternally curse this day and will curse the day that ever you were born to see such a season of the outpouring of God's Spirit and will wish that you had died and gone to hell before you'd seen it. Now, undoubtedly, it is as if it was the days of John the Baptist, the axe is it? An extraordinary man are laid at the root of the trees, that every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit may be hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, let every one that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let every one fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountains, lest you be consumed. The sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God preached. Enfield, Connecticut, July 8, 1741. I'm grieved today by knowing men and women casual in their approach, dead in their spirits, lusting after the entertainment of our day, lusting after the money of our day, lusting after prestige and power, lusting for the comforts of life, and yet in their spirit, dead, twice dead. Oh, they go to church. They sing the wonderful songs of John Wesley but they're dead. I see some that I know slowly beginning to awaken, but I want to say to them, haste, haste, 
You know not the hour of your judgment. My doorbell rang recently. It's just a matter of weeks. And there was a couple, a married couple. I invited them to come in. I knew her. I had not met him before. He was an alcoholic. We spoke for a bit, and I finally said to him, May I pray for you that this alcoholism will be broken and you will be set free. I said, do you want to live or do you want to die? He said, I want to live. I said, okay. Let me begin to pray for you. And I began to plead the blood of Jesus over this man. I prayed a prayer of faith that the power of the alcohol was broken in his life. I said to him, now let me be absolutely straight up honest with you. You are facing life or death. If you continue to drink, you will soon be dead. That's what the Holy Spirit has said to me. If you are choosing life today and you now have before you those two choices, life and death, if you choose life, you will be born from above, you will be given a new spirit, and you will leave behind the wickedness of your life. This man was a very intelligent man. This man was a man of great skill and talent. His wife was weeping over him, pleading with him to leave his alcohol. I said to him, because I have prayed in the name of Jesus and I have pleaded the blood of Jesus over your life, you have the power now to make the decision to leave your alcohol. And you will live. If you make the decision to continue in your alcohol, you will die. It is that simple. Now, please, I called him by name. I said, please choose life or death. He said, well, I want to live. I said, wanting to live is not choosing to live. If you're going to choose to live, you must leave your alcohol, and now you must make the decision. God has given you a a small window of opportunity when you can choose life or death. Which do you choose? Will you leave your alcohol now? Will you renounce it? And will you be born from above and set free to enter into Jesus. He answered, I will still drink alcohol. At that point, he and his wife began to exchange angry words. She was deeply hurt. 
She got up and walked out, took her car and left. And he was stranded in my home. I said, you have made your decision. I will continue to pray that before you die, that decision will be changed. For this is yet the day of salvation for you. This young 30-year-old man, big strapping guy, handsome, talented beyond measure. He said, I need to go to such and such a place and I don't have the means of doing that. Will you take me? I said, absolutely. Let's go get in the car. I'll drive you there now. I drove him there. I said, do you have money for food? He said, no, I have nothing. I said, I'm to give you this. I gave him $40 for food. I said, that's not for alcohol. That's for food. It is for provision. He said, thank you very much. And he got out of the car and he walked away. I was told a week ago that he had disappeared. His wife had not heard from him. His family had not heard from him. And I was asked, will you please pray for him? I came to the Lord and I began to pray for him. And there was dead silence in the heavens. It was blank. I'm not accustomed to that. Usually when I pray, it's alive in the spirit and I'm directed on how to pray. I stop praying. People ask me, do you think he's dead? I said, it's likely. Because when I pray, the space he was in is empty. I learned yesterday after the broadcast that his body had been found out in the woods, that he was gone. He died in his sin and in his wickedness. I don't know what decisions he made moments before he passed, so I cannot say he went to hell. But every indicator is that he chose to live in his flesh, He chose to live in his sin. And the Lord withdrew his hand and let him fall. Now I am extremely concerned about you. Because I know that many of you who listen to this broadcast in your pride of religion think you're fine. But if I were to ask you, are there still issues between you and Jesus, you would answer, yes, there are still issues. I'm working on them. No, then you're not saved. Known sin will keep you hell-bound. Jonathan Edwards believed, as I believe, that you must be born from above. You must be made into a new creature. 
And you must seek after Jesus with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your spirit, that you cannot live a compromised life between Jesus and the world. I confess to you today there is nothing in my heart standing between me and Jesus. My heart is filled with love and joy and peace, and I know his presence. I have been redeemed by his blood. I want that for you. I praise God for those of you who now experience that. But many of you are still playing games with God. And you somehow have confidence that you that you are going to make it, but the way is a broad road that you're making it down, and the broad wo- the broad way, the broad road leads to destruction. So I come today desperately concerned for you. This young man did not believe me that he would soon perish if he rejected Jesus. But the decision was so blatant. The decision was so in Jesus' face that he said, you've made your final decision. I'm taking you. And he let this man drop into hell. What decision do you need to make today to not just be religious, but to be saved from your sin, to be restored to the narrow path? The Lord's been speaking to you about those issues in your life that you are continuing to hold on to and worship. Those things are called idolatry. He's been speaking to you about your bitterness, about your anger. He's been speaking to you about your pornography, your fornication, your indecency. He's been speaking to you about your selfishness and your pride. Jesus is here right now. His presence is palpable in this studio. And he's asking you now, what decision will you make? For you now can choose heaven or hell. You can choose life or death. And some of you, like this story of the young man I just shared, if you make the decision to continue to rebel against God, it is an obvious and in-your-face decision, and God may let you fall just as he let this man fall. And you will spend eternity in that miserable place called hell. Or you can say, Lord, I want to live. And now I know you've given me the power to make the decision that I can live. 
and in your mercy and in your grace. You're extending to me the offer of salvation I accept. And I ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and make me a new creature. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, I just cry aloud for my brothers and my sisters. Lord, have your way. Lord, many are right now listening in the valley of decision with arrogance and pride pretending but are not yet sold out and given to you. Lord, deal with their hearts faithfully. Cause them to choose life and not death. I pray in your mighty name. Amen. Well, we're coming to the end of the month. I'm looking forward to hearing from many of you as the Holy Spirit moves in your heart. I want to thank Denise. Your gift came yesterday after radio. It was a great encouragement to my heart. Thank you. I hope today's been helpful to you. You can read the entirety of the sermon by Jonathan Edwards by just going on the internet and Googling Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I urge you to read it and pray over it. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Or you can go on the internet to nationalprayerchapel.com. NationalPrayerChapel.com One word God bless you all I love you Tomorrow's a prayer meeting day Call and pray online I'll talk to you soon